0: The Big Light Presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. you're listening to Pleathered and my guest is presenter and broadcaster, Connie McLaughlin. We talk about Connie's career as a presenter, journalist and behavioural coach Starting out as a woman in an entirely male-dominated industry And Connie explains how meditation and mindfulness can improve daily life As always, there's plenty more conversation in there If you enjoy what you hear, feel free to share this episode Cheers! So, Connie McLaughlin, presenter, journalist, behavioural coach—quite um, an, an interesting journey you've taken through professionally, through you know everything you've done with TV broadcasting, and obviously your your business as well. You're in our buzz, but I suppose we'll start with education. Um, you, you you went to a, was it a course at Napier in Edinburgh? You're only there for about six or seven weeks, is that right?
1: Yes. Thanks for bringing that up, Sean. <laughs> that was a—that was a time of <laughs> my life. I don't want to forget. No, I want to forget. I'm looking. Um, no, for me, I always knew that I wanted to be a journalist, and that was at the time the best course that you could do um, to become a journalist. So it made sense. But mm-hmm. I think at that time I was only sixteen. Um, just I had my seventeenth birthday would have been in the September, and I started the sort of course in the September, and I was just too young. Like Edin- I didn't drive or anything at that point. Edinburgh seemed like a long way away. It just seemed like I remember having, and this is like the worst excuse ever, right? But this is just the truth. Like I remember. Um, I had to leave my house at six in the morning and then one uh, lecture was like at one side of like the the city and then the other lecture and I think a tutorial class was at the other end of Edinburgh and I was like oh how would I get there and what would I do and blah 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 and it just became a wee bit of a kind of uh, a non-starter. Now Mm. that would be a ridiculous thing but when you're 16 you're kind of like that those kind of barriers or those kind of like um, challenges become a big thing in your head so you're like right okay so I thought to myself right well I'll stop doing that and then I'll find another course that's a bit closer to home in Glasgow so I remember Callie. I'd spoken to Callie, and they'd said listen we're doing a, a journalism course that's the only other unit at the time that was offered any, any sort of journalism course in Scotland and they'd said, we're planning to do one next year. So if you want to start a course with us, like a wider course like social science, then you can just be transferred to the to the um, journalism course in the next year. You And it means you won't miss out in a year. Mm-hmm. So I did that. But the only problem was they didn't start a journalism course for another three years. So I ended up doing a social science course, which is sort of really wide variety of subjects. So... Like economics, sociology, psychology, politics. Which politics was a big thing that I, mm-hmm. that I loved at the time. Um, anyway, so I sort of I started to specialise in the psychology and politics side of it, and then just continued continued on from there. And I always knew that I could do um, a postgrad, a journalism postgrad, because I needed to find a way and a route into getting into journalism um, anyway. So that's how that happened.
0: I take it the psychology aspect really interests you because obviously we'll talk about that later with, with you in our buzz. Was that something that, because I mean you've described yourself as a weaker, always been very intuitive, very interested in like sort of even spiritual aspects of, of life and existence. Was that something that you sort of consciously thought you would move towards or did it just happen by accident?
1: Totally not. I'd love to say I had this great idea at the time where I was like really like foreseeing something in the future of some like different career path. It absolutely wasn't like that at all. It was just totally by chance. And I say that in inverted commas because I think sometimes these things will align the way they're meant to align Mm -hmm. for whatever further sort of need and, and, and use they can be further down the line. But for me, it was just about actually I found psychology as part of that course quite boring. Because it wasn't really the psychology, I think that I was massively interested in. It was more like um, the research methods side of it, and it was sort of like um, bringing together evidence and bringing together um, the more statistical side of it and analysis side of it. Which for me wasn't—I didn't find that interesting. I find I found more the behavioural side of it and understanding how people work and the—I the, the, suppose the the biology of the brain and all that sort of thing—side of it interesting. But when you actually have to to, to be a psychologist, you need the, you need both of them. Mm-hmm. So you need to be able to be have that sort of keen interest in how that behavioural stuff works, but also how you can back it up with research, which um, which I think is interesting. But in, again, when you are, I think at that point I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. I'm like, you know, that that wasn't something that I was. I love writing. I love being creative. Mm-hmm. I loved like you know, things that I could sort of really get my teeth into and, and you know, invoke discussions about. And that's why I love the politics stuff and, and, and the rest of it was more sort of a means to an end. But it became pretty useful, actually, further down the line. Mm-hmm.
0: Even going back to being a wee girl as well, obviously you're saying what you're interested in, and in journalism and presenting. i mean, you want to tell me the story about presenting Beach Grove Garden because that's obviously quite an inst- like an instinctive thing to to want to be doing.
1: Totally. I remember when I was, I must have been from, I don't know, four, five, six, I used to play and so I've got three older brothers, right, and we're we're really close. But the brother that's sort of closest to me in age, my brother Steve is like three years older than me. So we played a lot when we were younger together. The, The other two were more sort of like they were, you know, probably trying to I don't know hang about with girls or do whatever playing their bikes and stuff when me and Steve would be sort of making up wee games and whatever um so but a lot of the time I would I would go over to spend a lot of time in my nana's house and um played in her garden and she had loads of like plants so I used to just stand in the garden and pretend I was presenting a program and the program that I knew that you, you sort of was related to the garden was the Beach Grove Garden on the BBC and I used to like welcome the guests like you so for example, in some um, programmes, you've got like a, cam- a wider shot camera, which is called a jib.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it's almost like it pans around to see if you're moving or you're sort of, it's given a wider shot, but you're still talking to it. And again, at this point, at like a young age, I was like talking to this jib. <laughs> I, don't I don't know if I was like really weird or just really forward thinking, right? Um, but I would sort of, I'd, I'd go around the garden and sort of discuss all the plant life. And then I'd, I'd, if maybe my brother Steve wasn't there, I'd make up, pre- like, pretend guests who were coming on to, to chat about whatever sort of shrub we were talking about this week. So it was always something that I just found um, to be, like, fun. And it kind of still feels like that now, whenever you're doing a programme. Um, it, it just feels like it's not really a job. It's just about a laugh, except you're, you know, you're getting paid to it. Yeah, life. I find
0: that really funny. Like, I always talk about when kids will discuss, you know, maybe you speak to a five-year-old or a six-year-old and they say, I want to be... A doctor or a teacher or whatever and always think there's no way that you know what those jobs actually entail so it has to be a, a really ingrained sort of desire or or something that's given to you and then to go on and pursue it is, is quite funny before we do talk about career as well obviously I'm a big football fan is a wee girl was that influenced by your brother so if you're just speaking about gazetta italia like with james richardson and stuff
1: it's it's Do you know what I would say? Probably not, because it's only my brother Chris who um, is a sports journalist as well, um, who was really interested in football. Like our family weren't massively football into football. My dad um, wasn't a sort of a big football fan. My stepdad wasn't a big football fan, so it wasn't like you know we were taken to. It was a big moment like where the family would sit down and watch football. My dad took us to a game, I remember, when I was like really young and it was Motherwell Celtic. And maybe that sparked something, but not certainly something that I was aware of at the time. Um, See,
0: I was going to say just on your brother, Chris, this is quite a funny thing. Um, there's no way in hell he would ever remember this, but when I was 14, I did work experience at Real Radio. And I went to Easter Road with Mark Benstead at the time, who was working, I don't know, I think he's at Sky now. And uh, we met Tony Mowbray because it was a Hibs press conference and he was a lovely guy ever. But then I met your brother, Chris. And uh, I always it's always stuck with me how nice he was to me because he took a real interest and asked me loads of questions. And it's funny how, like, God, oh, it must have been like 16 or 17 years ago. Um, and it's just always kind of stuck with me. So even now, every time I hear him, I always think back to that, just that one wee minute, like the impact it had on me.
1: So interestingly, Chris is, Chris is really good at stuff like that. He has this ability to be able to to really listen to people. And I remember my, my one of my best friends, um Claire, whenever we were going to uni we'd gone to Cavos. it was like our first sort of kids holiday like girls holiday away and whatever and we were all sort of like loving life getting ready to go to Cavos. and I'll never forget like in our old house Chris used to live in the loft right not like living (laughs) it but his bedroom was in the loft and we used to like like we would all sit and kind of sit halfway up the ladders or the stairs to the loft and like my friends would kind of sit and we'd all chat and she was like totally um so confused and conflicted as to what she wanted to do and he used to sit with her for ages and go through like prospectuses and like courses and everything and like right, what is it you want to do bigger picture and really sort of sitting coaching her
0: and mm-hmm.
1: he did not need to do that you know but he really does take an interest in people and and ha- has a real sort of like I don't know like I, I want to help folk like that and he does really take an interest in people's careers so it doesn't surprise me what you're what you're saying about Easter Road because I think he genuinely does mean it I don't think he's just saying it to sort of pass yeah. the time and.
0: No you could tell it was genuine because I was actually blown away I still say to this day that Tony Mowbray is one of the nicest people I've ever met in football yeah, okay, he was nice. so so lovely um, but as well I remember Chris taking a real interest and just thinking that's nice because I think it must have been the Thursday and I had been ignored at Celtic ignored at Rangers ignored at Falkirk and uh, so to then have somebody actually ask questions and think, uh, it just it was a it was a, a nice impact. Um, before you started out, so you didn't you went and did a post grad diploma in broadcast journalism, um, two thousand and seven. So then your first job was that working at for Bauer or was that at Radio Clyde?
1: Aye, so the first job that I got, I, I did some work experience actually with Real Radio as well. Um, I think remember my first actual gig that I was given, like sport wise, was for Real Radio, and I did a boxing mm-hmm. presser. And I get paid a fiver for it. Although <laughs> Heather Kane, who was the news editor at the time, still disputes that. She's like, "Nah, it would have been like twenty-five kids. And I'm thinking, "Nah, I don't think it was She's done um, that much." I saw. Come on, I you know. Um, but yeah, my first my first job was for Radio Clyde's um, and their news team. So I remember like getting that job and then getting the phone call that I'd got that job. And I was actually down visiting Chris when I used to live in Moffat, and I was standing in a queue for the chippy randomly Um, and I got the call from the guy who was there at the time, Rob Waller, saying Oh, would love to offer you the job, and I'm like trying to play it really cool and all, as if I wasn't really that bothered. But secretly, I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" Oh my
0: god, there's a guy off Radio Clyde News phoning me.
1: I phoning me, and then I always knew that, like, so the like news thing. I, I always have like I had a real interest in news and sort of current affairs and everything. But I always knew that, and I think you need to have that generally if you want to be a journalist, no matter what your area of expertise within, within journalism is going to be. But certainly, I always knew that sport was going to be the sort of angle. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really make any sort of like secret of that when I was in there. There was like two desks, the news desk and the sports desk and they were like almost like a sort of stones threw away from each other and I'm almost like there's a seat there and I'm going to have that seat really shortly and I think it only took me maybe six months or something before I got the job. I'm not sure if it was just because they wanted rid of me (laughs) or it was just more the case of oh will somebody actually just get her over there because this is just becoming annoying now because I'm like... Was so there any pressers I can go to, or is there anything you need done,
0: or you know? So, how was it? See, when you first started, I suppose overall in the industry, and this extends more to Sky as well. I mean, I don't want to go down the predictable, lazy question route of, oh, were people sexist to you? Um, but there would have been like sort of archaic, sort of antiquated attitudes in some facets of the industry. How did you first find that when you started? Because obviously, things have moved on, but you would have been one of the first women in, and well, in that part of the industry anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I think there would be it would be stupid to say that that wasn't the case or there mm-hmm. wasn't sort of that feeling at certain clubs that that you were not not the token girl, but mm-hmm. very much like you definitely I felt as if you had to probably prep more than I would have done if I was someone
0: else. Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't really mind that because I I didn't... And I don't know if that's maybe just because there's something within you that just learns to accept that, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing anyway. But I didn't really think at the time, oh my God, you know, this is a travesty and I should be treated equally mm-hmm. and, and because I'm being treated differently. I just felt that the, I made a choice to be in this industry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is predominantly men because actually at that point it was a men's sport. So I understood that. But also... I'm really passionate about it and I do know what I'm talking about and actually the questions that I'm asking you are just as legitimate as anyone else who's sitting in the front row of this press conference. So either I've got to just ignore, unfortunately at that point, that feeling of, um, of not being the same or use it to my advantage and I feel as if, um, I'm not really sure if I did that. I certainly, I, I continued on and applauded on and I'm still here. Mm-hmm. So I suppose that's not a bad sign. Um but I do think that it, it definitely has changed. I do think that it's changing even more and it probably has still further to go um than we were at just now. But I definitely there were of course there was there was there was feelings that at times were quite uncomfortable. Mm. Um and probably are a hundred percent completely cleared away and, and not there anymore. I don't think so.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there anybody that sticks out that, that was exemplary or did help you starting out? Because I don't even want to say as if it's like radical positive behaviour, but I think for some people, even people of an older generation, to I don't know, extend the hand of like friendship or support would have been seen as quite radical. Does that make sense in what I'm trying to yeah, say there?
1: I know what you're saying. Um I had a lot of I had a lot of friends in um our industry because it's quite a small industry so people that were really nice to me anyway i mm-hmm. was also chris had also been in the industry for a wee while and i was coming into it and i suppose it's not just the the the, the female thing but you're also like chris's sister so you are mm-hmm. introduced to people as like chris's sister which is quite that's accurate because that's actually what's well, why i am <laughs> um <laughs> if i was if i was introduced as chris's like i don't know cousin then that'd be weird because i'm not but um yeah, I, I think that there was people certainly who were, would look out for you. Mm-hmm. I think, definitely. Um, I remember a conversation that I had, a couple of conversations actually, but one that sticks out in my mind. And I've not really thought about this for a while, but um, I work quite a bit with Five Lives and there's another reporter on there, Roddy Forsyth, who... Um,
0: He's Janice's brother, I'm sure, is he not?
1: Is he Janice's brother?
0: Right, so I got told this and I honestly nearly fainted. So it turns out Roddy is Janice's brother. which
1: is
0: I know, which is hilarious. So sorry, what were you going to say about him?
1: So good job, the story that I was about to say actually um, is a good story about Roddy. (laughs) Not that I would have given a bad one, but um, no... I remember we were on a trip. I can't remember where it was. To it was probably like a Scotland trip somewhere. Maybe like I think Macedonia pops into my mind, right? But it might have been somewhere else. Um, and I remember Roddy sort of overseeing like the the press, um, like who've been who were on the trip. So he would like get tickets and stuff like this. And um, I remember he was. I was sitting on the bus and I was on my own. And um, it was one of the first trips I think I'd done, and um, it couldn't have been Macedonia actually because I was there with Sheila. Um, so whatever it was, I can't remember. And he came over and sat down beside me, and he just he, he just sat and asked me loads of questions about, um, you know, what I wanted to do, how I'd been finding it, um, you know, sort of if I needed any help or any sort of like um, guidance with anything. He really did like sat and just take mm-hmm. it took time out that he didn't need to do, um to just try and sort of extend the hand of, listen, I know what it's like, probably if you don't really know a lot of people, you're out Mm -hmm. here in a foreign country, you know, and you might not know some of the answers to things that are happening or you might be unsure about, you know, certain things to do. I'm here if you need me. And I've never forgotten that actually, because it's, he didn't need to do that. And it was, it was something that sticks in my mind that, that he's, that, that it was appreciated because it wasn't easy Mm -hmm. to do that and, and be out there. But,
0: so I was gonna say it, it's I think it says a lot about people when they show kindness, but then at the same time I'm like, does it to show basic human decency, like does it say a lot or is it the bare minimum? But I suppose there is a there is a bit of a balance in there. Um I
1: think sorry. it does. I think it does say a lot about someone because not everyone's been taught in the same way. Mm. And I feel like sometimes we automatically assume that everyone has had the basic understanding and the basic sort of teachings that we've had, mm-hmm. and and you would think and hope that most of us know inherently right from wrong, but actually sometimes people haven't been extended that fortune. Yeah,
0: they can so you.
1: actually, when uh, it can surprise you, so when someone actually takes the time to sit and say, right, do you know what? And 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 when they don't need to, or there's no gain for them. Then I think that sometimes is a nice thing to call out and say. Actually, do you know what? That was decent. Thanks.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, um, what's that quote? And this is taking it majorly philosophical and blowing it up into something that it's not. But it's like that quote saying, "Great men plant what is it? Plant the seeds of trees under which the shade will never sit." So, like, if you oh, yeah. nothing to mm-hmm. kind of gain from yeah, yeah, it. So yeah. I suppose that does say a lot, even in a in a small It's like
1: altruism, isn't
0: it? Yeah. Um, going back to your career, how long was it before you ended up? Was it Sky down in Leeds?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh How long before I moved to Sky? I think I was at Radio Clyde for, I would say, four years.
0: Fucking hell, was it that long?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, I, th- I mean, I'm not great with dates. I'm not gonna lie. you will probably look back and it was a two years that wasn't. <laughs> um, no, it was like three and a half or four years. I'm sure. Um, and then I moved down south. I got the job in the October, and moved down. Um, the only twice I've ever worked, on my birthday, in my life, my last. Day, game for Radio Clyde was Rangers at Ibrox and I can't remember, like it was maybe Hibs or Motherwell. Um and I remember that was my last game and it was and it was just at the end of September. Um so yeah.
0: What did the what was the role down at Sky? What did that entail?
1: So it was a presenter role um and you had to do a bit of producing as well. Mm-hmm. So we had a channel that they were trying to plug as effectively than like the new talk sport or five Live, um, but they wanted to mirror their tv output on on radio because obviously they could see that there was a market that they were missing and they wanted to try and make sure they were capturing that market so mm-hmm. they were testing this this station for a good few years and trying to sort of see and figure it out um where it sat i suppose within the market as well and they had they had offices up in Leeds that were I think old Skybet offices, and that's why it was based out They are not based out of um, Austerly in, in London, um, and we and we were brought down to to try and put something together. So initially, I think I think initially I did the afternoon program, and then more like ad hoc stuff, and then I did the breakfast program for a while, and then latterly I was doing sort of different shifts. So maybe producing one program in the morning, and then. Um, present another one so initially when I, when I first moved there it was very different because it was a lot of a big realization that the world actually there is a world outside Scottish football which was quite a shock because I didn't really realize how much and how much I sort of seen the lens of life through the eyes of of Celtic and Rangers and how important that was having you know covered the west of Scotland as your beat for for, for however, however many years and being quite indoctrinated into thinking it was really the most important thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of knocked out me quite quickly <laughs> <laughs> when people were kind of like, are you joking? Like, no one cares about that here, you know? And I'm like furious at the prospect that nobody mm-hmm. wanted to sit and watch a, a Rangers or Celtic game or, you know, they're playing in Europe or whatever. And this is, and it's, at that time, actually, this Ranger story was just kind of happening. It was the February mm-hmm. after I'd moved down. And um, and that was all kicking off. And it was very much like, oh, well, you know, it was a big story, obviously, but it wasn't as big as it would have been covering it in Scotland. So um, yeah. that was that was. Then again,
0: I'll not be, ta- I'll not be taking lessons or letting the English dictate to me what is a big story and what are big clubs when you've got derbies where they sit sitting amongst each other, like the Merseyside derby. You've got Everton and Liverpool fans sitting beside each other. And I think it's it's just, it's just an intense friendly.
1: But, in, but not as easy to do when you're living down there and working for an English broadcaster.
0: Yeah, true. Uh, completely true.
1: By by their sort of editorial guidelines and what they want to do. And and also I think that's a, a lot to do with and be part of being a journalist is that knowing editorially what your audience want. So I needed to know and understand that my, my, the audience that I was speaking to didn't have as much of an interest as the audience I was speaking to at Radio Clyde. You know, and and yeah. almost changing your perception to think actually, right? Well, well, if I'm if it's partic- particularly from a producing perspective, so if I'm producing a or running order, what is what is going to be taught? What's going to be the most important thing? And then actually sort of changing that around to reflect mm-hmm. that audience, which is which is a really important part. I think of even when you're podcasting or when you're doing anything, it's thinking about actually what what are my my customer, aka your audience. What are they looking? What are they looking for? What do they need? Mm-hmm. And and reflecting that and what your content is.
0: We're going down there, you've obviously shown a bit of a drive because you've had to leave, I'm assuming, family, friends to go down to a city that wasn't completely familiar with you. I think it was at that point, I'll just read something out that you said before, God, which I'm quite God. interested in, but you right? said that you were obsessed with how you were going to progress and all you cared about was how you were going to move forward in journalism and that you were never focused in that moment. And you became quite unhappy as a result of that. Uh, You said it was your first time living away. You found it difficult being away from family and friends. And you got to the point where it wasn't a great place to be in your life. And you had to do something about it. That's obviously, first of all, it's quite, I suppose, contradictory to what your expectation would be. Because you would expect that you were advancing, you're moving on in the world. You're climbing the ladder, you're down working at Sky. It's huge. There's a lot of prestige. We are quite unhappy. So I suppose, before we talk about you going to that guided meditation class in Leeds, Talk me through what that feeling was like, because I think there's a lot of that just now, people failing to to live in the moment, not being really mindful, sort of living in the past or living in the future, and therefore sort of relinquishing any joy that, that could be found in the present. I mean, what was what was that experience like? Because I think at one point or another, everybody's had it, but unless you're living through it, it can be quite difficult to, to recall it or to even relate to it, you know, when anybody else is talking about it. Does that make sense?
1: it makes total sense and I think you're absolutely right um what did it feel like it felt really dark and it Mm. felt really heavy and it felt really um uncomfortable um going from a situation where as you rightly say you know you're I'm so used to having a big family like I mentioned earlier on being really close to that family seeing them every day having a really big you know, group of friends and close friends group who were, my mum's house was like the hub of activity. You know, everybody went to my mum's house and sort of, you know, my friends would just pop in for a cup of tea or whatever and going from that hub to sitting in a flat. um, And I was convinced was haunted also. (laughs) It's another story. Um, Like day in, day out, working in in a situation where probably, if I'm being honest, at the time, sort of, not I can reflect on it, and I feel differently, but at the time it felt like it wasn't really what I thought it was going to be, and that wasn't because it was soul to me, it was just because my expectations were probably wrong mm-hmm. um, but it felt as though it was um aye, uncomfortable and um and it made me I think sit with a lot of things uh that probably I hadn't really noticed, heard or acknowledged before. Mm-hmm. when you don't have as much noise around you to distract you from it and sitting on your own and having that time and space to to sit with your own mind basically can be quite frightening mm-hmm. and that's why probably most of us sit on our phone constantly or sit with other things to distract us and probably why a lot of the time during this COVID situation we found it really difficult because there's not as much distraction as we would have um, on a normal basis. So you're sort of faced with thoughts or faced with emotions that are uncomfortable and you just automatically want to get rid of. And I think what I found is that the more you try and get rid of it and the more you try and sort of like push it away, the more anxious and upset or depressed you become. Mm -hmm. Um, And, that was quite a big life lesson at the time I really hated it like I hated it I hated it with a passion my friend and I actually who and I won't name names but my I had a friend and mine actually who um, who worked um closely down south with me as well and and they'd felt exactly the same. And we used to just sit and be like, oh my God, this is the worst ever. This is terrible. I can't believe it. be here and blah, blah, blah. Nobody was forcing us to be there, you know? Like <laughs> yeah, it wasn't as yeah. if like we were in prison. Like we could have just got in the car and drove home if it was that bad. Um, But it was probably for me, definitely for me, it was a, it was almost like a kind of a, almost an emotional immaturity about the fact that I had to face um, face being on my own for the first time. And I think I can only now see that 100%, that period of my life was the biggest and most important time for growth mm-hmm. um, that, I, that I've ever had even even now. And God, there's been a hell of a lot of periods of growth in between that, let me tell you. But that certainly was the catalyst, I think, for a lot of change for me.
0: Did you feel like, because I suppose for a large part of your identity is... T- is- inextricably linked to your profession, to your job. You know, you're saying that you were always looking forward to how you were going to advance or how you were going to climb the ladder even further. So when you're saying that you could have left at any point, but did you feel, well, I have to be here because this is where my job dictates? You know, this is, is it, you know, I mean, as if you can't retreat.
1: Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't get away from it because there was another part of me saying, "No, no, but we need to do this. Mm-hmm. I need to be in this movie because it, the only way that I'd feel. I think it, to me, for me, it was all about self-identification. And it was if if I succeeded in that job, it meant that I was, you know, I was whatever that would mean. You know, sort of externally, it would give me a status that I think for me was was even though at that point it was very subconscious. It was the it was the driving force of of everything that I was doing. And the other part of me was going, but wait a minute, this is ludicrous. And then this other sort of voice was going, no, 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 we need to do this. We need to do this. We need to keep going because if we get to this point, then we'll be happy. But ultimately, even working with Sky or working with it, no matter who it would be, working with any sort of getting something that you think is going to be the thing that makes you happy, then you get it and realize actually, it's not that that's making me happy here. It's yeah. definitely not the thing that's making
0: me happy. And I've had it's, that a few times. It's like the carrot and the stick, isn't it? It's something that's always just, it's always just around the corner. As if I get here, I'll be happy. I suppose that takes me on quite nicely then to the focus on well, meditation and mindfulness uh, and sort of detaching yourself from external things to make you happy, whether they be status or achieve. First of all, I suppose a question, just if you, as I would call you more of an expert than me, if you could explain to the listener, how would you define meditation and and mindfulness in in its simplest terms, first of all?
1: So, well, I think first and foremost, the two things are very different. So, well, not very different. The two things are different. Mm -hmm. You can have a mindfulness meditation and that can be a different thing. The practice of mindfulness, first and foremost, is just practicing a process of being aware in the present moment. So being aware in the present moment actually being in the conversation that you're having actively listening and being aware of what's happening within the body touching your hands you know touching the surface of whatever is you're sitting on or sitting beside you and actually letting that become something you become aware of and feeling it Mm. using all different sense sensory sort of parts of the body whether it's touch taste smell um and the more that you can become aware in the present moment the more that you don't live in that zone, as you mentioned earlier on about living in the future and living in the past. We've got something like 80,000 thoughts per day and the percentage of them that's in the past and in the present, in the past and in the future is ridiculous. So it means that in the past can bring us depression and the future brings us anxiety. So when the vast majority of people and sort of in, in the culture we live in today, particularly in Western civilizations, civilizations, means that we are consistently on this treadmill of thought the more that you can use a process of whether it be um, mindful awareness mindfulness meditation mindful breathing um, it brings us into what's happening here now and it actually like I was actually I was doing a, a conversation with Radio Scotland just before we started this podcast and they were asking me the question about how can we become more aware of or or how can we cope better with what's happening with this pandemic and with Covid and I just was honest and said it's not easy because I don't find it easy and I'm Mm. not going to sit and say that I'm actually like totally sitting all zen in my flat like yeah I'm totally fine (laughs) with the COVID thing because I'm not and it's a constant battle each day or a constant challenge but the the anxiety that we feel with that comes with for example we're being bombarded on the internet on twitter and whatever else with oh my god COVID Christmas oh my god what's that going to mean for like for us, for our family, what does that mean? Longer term, blah blah blah, which causes extreme anxiety within people. Oh my God, what does it mean in terms of what we've lost? Oh, the money we've lost. Like for me, for example, like we had to cancel our wedding. Um, you know, like oh, what does that mean for you know, our, your your life's moving forward and all these mm. are there different things that you know within your life plans and your your things are being cancelled or put back and whatever else. And you're just like, well, that creates noise within our within our brain within our mind and that is the thing that creates more emotional disturbance within people and i think the more that we can bring ourselves back to to being grounded to be in the moment and let me caveat caveat that by saying it's not easy right Mm -hmm. because it's taken years and years and practice and still for me you know it's it's something that i need to practice um then i think that's a way certainly that we can give ourselves some freedom from that busyness of our mind Mm. Um, a meditation, the meditation side of it, uh, can be, there can be so many different forms of meditation: mantra meditation, mindfulness meditation, as we spoke about. Um, you can have guided meditation. Um, it's just a way of being able to, for me anyway, connect with myself again, to create a bit of stillness within myself. Mm-hmm. And and I go through these phases because when i first started meditation and the guided meditation and leads that, that i've spoken about so many times um was more about visualizing stuff and visualizing yourself to, to improve mood whereas when you're actually doing uh, like meditation and I don't like to use the word proper meditation because you know whatever works for you I always say that and I and maybe I, it's remiss of me to say that because I'm, I don't profess in any way to be like John Cabot zinn the the mindfulness guru of of the world the man who can, invented mindfulness but I've practiced it and the only thing that I'll I'll teach people about or talk to people about is the, only, the experiences that I've had mm-hmm. and then let people make the choices and go and experience it for themselves. Cause I think that's really important. It's a very, um, it's something that's quite, it's, it's, very personal to you because one form of meditation might be the thing that absolutely lands with you. And I'm like, actually for me, that that doesn't really work. Or you can find that period of stillness or that, that the, the mindfulness in running or, cooking or music or the thing that helps you to direct your thoughts in a different direction is is a, is a form of as a form of meditation mm-hmm. but for me the, the meditation that I like to practice is is more of a, a breathing meditation and I like to use mantra meditation as well which for me helps me to kind of like Transcendental Meditation, but I, I, I don't practice Transcendental Meditation, even though I think I might, which mm-hmm. is supposed to help you transcend the, the the mind, the conscious mind and the ego into a place where you're basically in bliss or peace.
0: Yeah, my mind can be a bit of a bonfire at times. And what you're saying about all the COVID fear and the Christmas stuff and all that, the, today and yesterday, I've had a shocker. It's just been like, it's just constant bombarded with what's going to happen here? What happened with this? And it's just stopping yourself for me anyway, stopping and just being, just saying, no thinking about the past, no worrying about the future, just kind of being where I am. I find that being in the gym or cooking actually a, a wee bit as well, but being in the gym is the sort of main thing for me. Um, But I can definitely feel when I'm going a wee bit, like even now, seeing we're having this conversation, this might sound ridiculous, but my brain is 10% in it. And that's not through choice it's not because I'm not interested in you it's because my Where is mind it is,
1: Where is I it? don't know
0: it's just complete distraction and I just don't I feel a bit off-kilter today
1: have you ever done any meditation
0: I have done but it's kind of dipping in and out of it um or I don't I maybe just I think if you're trying to maybe learn or teach yourself um, it's not really the best way. I think I need somebody to to show me. Yeah,
1: I think that. I think you're right. I think also I used to go to a meditation class in in Edinburgh, and that wasn't. I, I went to actually a Buddhist center when I lived in Leeds after my sort of um, the class I used to go to regularly. But I wanted to learn the actual practice of how you meditate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or how sorry how Buddhists meditate yeah um and and i and I went to a, a course um there, and at that time, I found that quite difficult because it was all about sort of quieting the mind and um and because sort of similar to what you're saying, i was my mind was so busy, I found that really difficult, and actually, for me, the most important thing actually was getting to a point where I could acknowledge the thoughts that were racing in my head, so that would involve like going to a coach or going to speak to somebody um who could help me manage my emotions a bit better mm-hmm. um, and that for me actually was like such an important step because you you want somebody who can help support you um, and give you guidance on sort of like um, different ways of for it so for me it was like my the my busyness was shown in anxiety so like I wanted to and I'd had anxiety for like that in different ways and and um it, it it came up in different guises. So sometimes it would be the guise of panic attacks. So for it would be like um, I wouldn't be able to like go to certain places because I felt as if mm-hmm. if I went there then another panic attack would happen. It was always specific, like situations where I couldn't be in control, like maybe people's cars or like trains. It's always a weird transport thing I had. <laughs> um, but actually speaking to somebody and a professional person who knows how to manage that and manage that anxiety and manage that stuff. Was probably a step that ran alongside the meditation and mindfulness for me, and, I've, and I've realized I and I realised that actually probably I couldn't have done all that on my own. I needed to have that additional support yeah. there of someone else who could to- you could totally speak to who was not in your friend circle and your family who didn't have an ulterior motive with you, even if it was a one to be kind. Yeah. You know, because everyone that you speak to or your friends and whatever else have always got another. Like they see you in different ways, you know. It's it's completely. It's more beneficial to speak to someone who's completely and utterly de- detached from your family. Is ultimately yeah, what I'm trying to yeah, say, yeah. quite in- inarticulately. But do you know what I mean by that?
0: No, I completely know what you mean. So, I, well, I, th- I think there's a, c- a capacity, but I need to have, as you say, somebody who's objective and who will just say, "Here is how you need to do it. Here's what you're even aiming to do, or here's even what should come as a result." I know for everybody, it can be varying, but there's obviously going to be a base level of of kind of what you get to um probably the perfect time then to move on to your inner buzz um so i suppose like a partial transition from sports reporting and broadcasting to to life coaching you've also worked with businesses individuals football clubs which i'm really interested in um how did that come about i know you went over to chicago you were working with like tech companies was that with your brother
1: yeah so my eldest brother i feel as if like my all my brothers have had the shout outs today haven't they i
0: know yeah
1: um, so like my eldest brother mark actually has a consultancy in chicago and he develops businesses um and helps them with their business model so he um he and i sat and had a conversation about um what this that's that's the dog shaking <laughs> um <laughs> she wasn't in chicago uh about how I could extend this idea that I had in my head to become a reality. So how, mm-hmm. how could we transition um, from me being a sort of sports reporter that was pretty unhappy doing that because now I'd found all this new information. I'm thinking, right, well, so how do I then make this into a business? And it actually, it wasn't even consciously how I make it into business. It was how to consciously get this information out there. That was more mm-hmm. what I was interested in, which you would think wouldn't be that difficult considering that's actually what I did was getting information out there. But certainly within the, the um, field of sport, it wasn't necessarily like something that was, that was appropriate. So I had to find a separate way. I went to Chicago, as you say, worked with a lot of tech companies and different sort of um, startup incubators out there and just tested out material. But the main priority was, like, right, people need to, and again, the wording of that is is different to even how I would put it across now, but people need to know about this. Why is this not a thing? You know, like, I I kept thinking in my head, like, I don't understand why this is not, more um openly spoken about and at the time whenever I started on a buzz it wasn't so like mental health emotional wellbeing stuff wasn't really spoken about.
0: No, it absolutely wasn't. It's only been since about 2017, 18 that it's become an part of the public discourse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was very, very forward thinking.
1: Yeah. So but it was a bit mad because even at the time, like a lot of people thought I was losing the plot. <laughs>
0: they were
1: like <laughs> I remember one of my old bosses phoned me up and was like are you having like a David Icke moment, as he put it? And I actually, I was like, I don't really know what you're trying to get at there, but I kind of got mm-hmm. the, I got the, I got the gist of it. And he's like, Are you, are you okay? Like, is everything okay? And I'm like, um, Yeah, you know, everything actually has never been more fine. Mm-hmm. And I'm living a life now that I feel as if is like a really true and free life, where I'm doing something that I really genuinely feel as if it's going to make an impact to people, and kind of feel like for me. Not for everyone, but certainly for me. Like I felt, I felt like I really needed, I needed to do that. I needed to make the time that I had here on this planet, however long that is, like mm-hmm. matter for something. And I felt like what I was doing and what I'd been doing in the past, like wasn't what I was meant to be doing at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, and and these opportunities seem to sort of open up, and they seem to just land on my lap weirdly. And I thought, oh, this business malarkey is absolute piece of nonsense. It's absolutely, you know, it seems quite simple, and things really progressed really well. And and um, and yeah, I came back to Scotland and uh, started working with a lot of football clubs over here. I think probably on reflection that was maybe a wee bit too early, mm-hmm. because certainly in Scotland, I don't think there were. I mean there was there was the openness, Falkirk was one of the first ones that I worked with, were amazing. They were so forward thinking, they were so innovative. Um and I think we got, we did a lot of good work there. But I think the way that the model is in Scotland, the, the financially things, budgets are so tight that they only want to spend money on things that they can tangibly see
0: yeah.
1: the the return for. And I get that. I really do get that. Um but unfortunately for me, that that didn't really work as as a great model for my business. So it 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 just sort of I, I randomly I'd, I'd got a um, some traction with clubs down south, and um, one of the clubs that I was supposed to be working with was a crazy contract. And then the manager got sacked, oh. and um and so at that point, actually about a month or so later of me sitting thinking, shit, what am I going to do here? Because obviously at this point you're still, you know, you're still. The business was doing well and I, had, I was living a life that's a certain level of income that you need to sustain, you know, and um, your, and BT actually contacted me out of the blue and just said, listen, there's an opportunity to come and do stuff with us. Do you want to do it? And then, then that side of that career just started to take off again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it was almost like everything that I think in the last 10, 12 years has, has come when it needed to come. And yeah. I definitely think in terms of being, being a broadcaster and the things that now I think I bring to my job are better because of what I've done with Inner Buzz.
0: Do you feel that you're more, who was it? I think it was Dermot O'Leary said the secret of the, to success in live television is preparation and also being fearless.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that your experiences, obviously with you're Inner Buzz, does that make you a calmer broadcaster? Does it make you more confident?
1: Yeah, I, I don't, I that's not my experience. Certainly, and who am I to tell Dermot O'Leary, lady, right? But as, but everyone's experiences are different in yeah. terms of what they think is, is the thing that makes. And obviously, he's has has a lot more experience than me. But certainly, the thing that I find that makes it easier is being yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: See, so if you're just being yourself, then you can't make a mistake, you know, because you're not trying to be someone else, or you're not trying to be. Um, when obviously, clearly, you can say the wrong thing, but you're you're. If you're yourself and the way you would speak normally and the way that mm-hmm. you would come across, you connect to people more. So you're better at what you do. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
0: It completely. I think authenticity, um, not being flawless, is the key to, totally. to coming across well. Even when you look at people on reality TV, who to a degree you would could argue have acted deplorably at times, the public seem to still connect to them more because they buy into that authenticity and they think, well, while I may not really enjoy everything they're saying or doing you can't really fault the guy or the girl for for just being completely honest the um, what you were saying I wanted to touch on as well that um, back to your inner buzz so David McCracken who was at Falkirk spoke publicly about how much it helped the squad togetherness and squad harmony was it Falkirk that went on the- like a terrific run towards the end of the season or was that another club?
1: No, I think it was something like 17 games, I'm sure. No, it was 17 points of a difference from the season before. But like, I was going to say we...
0: If that's not a measurable or a tangible outcome, then then what is?
1: I think the, the difference as well, the goals ratio was 2.3 compared to the season before as well of an impact of a difference. They got to the playoff final, face Kilmarnock, but awkwardly enough, I was working with Kilmarnock as well at that time, so that was weird. Um but I was so invested in that team. I was so invested in everything that we were doing at the time. Actually, even thinking about that game still a wee bit hurts my chest because it makes yeah. me think about all the work that we've done. And it wasn't just that, you know, for me, this was like a measure of uh, does this stuff work or does it not? Mm-hmm. But like the guys who were in that squad, and they might say differently now, but certainly at the time, it was, they appeared to really buy into it. And I was really grateful for the amount of buy-in that I got because, you know, something like they were doing that in their spare time. They'd finished mm-hmm. training on a Monday and they could just go home. But sometimes we'd like sit for two hours, three hours at times when it was like somebody would start a chat and we would be doing stuff and, and they were enjoying it.
0: I'm mm-hmm. not saying
1: every single week. because Some of the stuff is not really that it, it's, it's difficult work. Sometimes it's not like all fun and games, but a lot of the time was about us trying to build something together. And that's creating culture and creating cohesion.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it covered in the press. It was in the it had like a Daily Record or something. And I remember thinking, that looks, that sounds like a really great idea. But I was really taken aback. I think I saw a picture of the Falkirk players sitting, like with their legs crossed, sitting on the pitch, maybe around you. And it, was, it, it evoked the image of kids at school. And I remember being really surprised <laughs> because footballers get the, rightly or wrongly, I would say more so wrongly, they get the, the reputation of being closed down to, and I, I use this very much jokingly, none of that gay shit, that's the sort of image that you have. Or, or that's how they're kind of um, stereotyped. So I found it surprising. I mean, was there any sort of resistance when when you kind of started or was there like a bit of reluctance? Because often as well, it's, it's that like schoolboy environment. Nobody wants to be, they want to go first and nobody wants to make themselves like boy. that
1: of course no there was um, not really with Falkirk actually more with Comarnock. Um when I had somebody hiding in a cupboard once that was funny <laughs> uh, I can't actually remember who it was but that was challenging um, and then um, with other clubs I was more doing one-to-one so the, the guys who would come to me would be guys who are choosing to be there sometimes the club would suggest it and recommend it
0: mm-hmm. and then maybe
1: you'd get like a like I mean I don't know what I need to be here for but I'm just going to say and then by the end of the session they'd be like right no, I totally get it they know it's not something um to be that they're there because there's you know they've been bad or it's it's actually something that's genuinely the club are spending and, and investing in them to try and make them better because they believe in them and that was always a, and it, was, it wasn't all the time sometimes actually some of the players actually were, were buzzing to come because they were like I, I, I see players like or at the time Conor McGregor stuff was a big thing you know yeah. Conor McGregor was on a bit like he's talking about the law of attraction and all this chat and whatever and you know as much as that wasn't I think we did touch on that a wee bit during the Falkirk time for you know, just for talking sake talking about positive psychology and this whole thing about mm-hmm. being able to visualize stuff and whatever else, but um that I suppose that helped. But I it's 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 it wasn't it wasn't always really easy. And I had players who would come for a bit and then uh, who would who would think actually this is this is too difficult for me and it's not for me. And actually again, this is all about, you know, reflecting back on it and thinking, well, some people are just not ready. Yeah. Some people are not ready because some of the stuff that we're doing is actually quite, um, people can feel quite um, vulnerable. And if someone already is dealing with things that are quite difficult and they're feeling a wee bit fragile anyway, then it can be quite dangerous to do that in a group environment. So it's up to me to be able to facilitate that group properly to be able to spot that and see that. And for them to have an open enough, or for me to have an open enough relationship with them that they can come and say, actually, um, I, I don't want to come and this is the reason why or I don't want to come and I don't need to feel as if I need to, to give you a reason why and that's absolutely fine
0: Yeah I completely understand that I feel like societally or collectively we've moved on so much as we were saying there it's only in the last couple of years it's become something that's really part of the public discourse to sort of whether it's mental health or whether it's goal setting or whether it's a whole love of attraction thing and I think there's right now we're between we're in a bit of a middle ground where collectively we are moving forward there in the public consciousness but individually not everybody's ready to kind of take that step maybe it's whether it's addressing things or it's it can cause a lot of pain I, th- I wonder if that's why we've seen a real sharp increase in people with mental health issues or suicides or whatever because there could be an awareness of things that need to be resolved but the wherewithal or the capacity or the ability to actually take the steps that have to be taken not quite there and you can imagine that would cause a real inner conflict in people um so I do completely understand it. But um, I'd say we're in a far better place um, in terms of the public consciousness than that we previously were. You know, I can't even imagine talking about the things we, even four four or five years ago, not that long. And it was just completely unheard of. Um, yeah, I suppose groups like yours, are, we've got a lot to thank for that. What, What is going to happen now? Because obviously you're doing more sort of broadcasting things. What? Have you put things in the back burner, or is it more of a—I a, don't want to say a side project because it's not a hobby, but you've obviously got other things taking up your time.
1: Yeah, well, before lockdown, I really did. I mean, I, I was—I was really focused on um, on what I was doing with the BBC and what I was doing, I suppose, with BT at that point as well. And mm-hmm. you can't really do both. You need to either. I remember somebody saying to me once, "Pick a lane, <laughs> and to do something properly, you need to really pick the lane and stay in it." and I think that I was finding I was becoming quite frustrated with at that point the lack of um, funding, the lack of uh, uptake. I suppose and and people share not people sharing the view that they need, things need to change because I because I I, I I I remember sitting probably 2016 17 and speaking to, a phone or texting every manager in the SPFL at the time and saying, listen, here's the here's the um, information here's the stats on what we've done um previously like let's talk about how we can how we can help your club and I think there was only maybe two who came back um three actually who came back and said um it's not for me the rest Mm -hmm. of them are like I'll have you in in the morning but I can't afford to pay you and I'm like and actually some some managers who you wouldn't have expected either who were like Listen, I hear you. I believe this. And I'm like, yeah. I remember thinking, God, that's a shock. Um, um so it wasn't about the lack of the lack of you know, desire for change, but certainly that that became something that was was not really sustainable. So it needed to be one or the other, and that other one was paying the bills.
0: hmm Yeah, I completely understand. That that's something I get frustrated with, and I suppose there's a reflection in sport as there is in in sort of everyday real life. So I feel like now that, you know, first, I suppose the first step was to people to start making noise and people to start sharing their experiences on their sort of mental health issues or, you know, how their sort of mind is working. And while I think that was really great, it's achieving nothing, you know, buzz terms or hashtags or memes or it's okay not to be okay, check up on your friends. I think we now need to start making noise, even from from conversations like these, which will I don't know, will vibrate into conversations that have to take place in Holyrood or Westminster or whatever. And I think what has to happen is we need to see more actual funding. We need to see more programmes to really assist people and to really help them. Um, whether it's through the NHS, whether it's through specialist programmes or specialist help. And also to flip that to, for that to be reflected in football, I would say, you know, managers saying, well, I don't have the money for it. If you were to say, I can prevent your players from being physically injured, they would find the money. And I think the two of them, you know, if somebody's not mentally sound or if they're off balance, you know, they're, no, they're not going to play well. They're not going to be able to contribute as much as they normally would. Um, so I can completely see the frustration uh, at there not being enough money. I think they would have to find the money. And I think that that is the same in society as it is in, in sport.
1: I don't know about that though, because I I genuinely think that they need to just... They, a lot of the time, the way that, that the short-term-ism of football generally, mm. manager will stay in place for, what, you know, 18 months or whatever it is in the Premier League that's your, your shortest... Your, or your sort of general um, span of a manager, lifespan of a manager. If you're, if you're going to lose your job, right, and let's be honest, this is these people's livelihoods as well, mm-hmm. then... They are if that if I can pay what whatever it is for talking sake say a pound for a player who potentially might get me fifteen goals or somebody else who might make the squad a two or three percent better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if it, if I've only got six months to save my job, I'm probably going to go for the player that's and I and I and I understand why that is. It's more probably the clubs
0: yeah I was
1: going to say be thinking about uh, or or that would be helpful for them to think about um you know how this could how this can be a bigger part of a culture change within a football club, but equally mm-hmm. in saying that, I think sometimes we forget that a lot of these clubs particularly now in in, in the Premiership in Scotland um are living gate to gate
0: yeah. Yeah, it's hand to mouth existence, it's isn't it? It's
1: completely, honestly. It, 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 some of the clubs that I worked with, I was shocked at how precarious a situation they're they're in. It probably clubs that you wouldn't even really think. Oh, really? Would you know they're, they're relying on gate monies coming in to pay wages. You know, and and I think that, I and I don't know. Obviously, there's financial support there now since since COVID,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and there'll be money in from league position and stuff like that. But I can, I can, uh, particularly the way things are now, I think it's even as a can's been kicked further down the road in any respect to thinking about bringing something like this into football clubs now, which is such a shame. Um, mm. I like I'd even considered um, and had conversations with people within the PFA, within PFA Scotland, about you know. What, what can we do even to offer this as something for the players? And, and you know, they were saying that, well, there's, there's, there's numbers there, uh, helplines for people and whatever else.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't think that's enough. No, that's the thing. I don't think it's enough either. There's got to be direct assistance. And the, the unfortunate irony is it's never probably been needed more now than it is if you see, they're in a precarious position. You know, wages aren't guaranteed. There's players that, even look at players like Andy Halliday, out of contract still. I mean he's he's no mug. He's been playing for Rangers for a few years already. He's not been their best player. And I think he's one example of multiple of people that are caught in this this limbo. And whether they admit it or not, there's gonna be some need for some sort of assistance. That actually takes me on to I wanted to ask you quickly, I don't want to keep me for too long. When players retire, do you have players getting in touch with you looking for, for I don't know, I don't want to see again assistance or therapy or but that must be a really difficult tightrope to walk because you're used to your life being a certain way
1: yeah I've, I've dealt with a few players who've been in that situation or not necessarily who have retired but are, are due to retire yeah. which is quite forward thinking actually of a lot of them um, and it's thinking about how do we begin to carve out a new life and how do they manage and cope mm. with that because again their identity has been intertwined with what they do for a job not just sort of from a status perspective, but actually just like day to day routine of right. this a go to training, you know, I come home at a certain time, you know, I'm earning this kind of money. But actually, you know, I've even from the the emotional upheaval of, oh God, I need to look for a club or mm-hmm. you know, it's all these things that you they do on a on a rotational basis of yeah. right, okay, every two years or if you're lucky enough to get a three or four year contract or whatever else, it's like, right, well, now I know that my contract's coming up for renewal or they've had an agent who's done loads of things for them or they've had people within the club to look after them. And yeah, there's there's definitely, I think, um, and again, PFA Scotland, I think, are, are, are trying to do um, mm-hmm. some additional work with people in terms of thinking about getting additional skills or learning or going to uni. or, um, But I think there's a massive um, gap and danger zone there of when you come out of a, a sport Mm. As to refinding your identity again and who you are, and and that's been that's been sometimes quite a difficult thing for people to see. It's for when people come to see me, it's a difficult thing for people to process.
0: Mm. Easier said than done, but people have to look internally. So that's if if anybody is interested in in finding out more about your inner buzz, where can they find that information directly, or would you direct them to you, or do you have a website?
1: I Did have a website. I don't have a website anymore because I've not been doing too much of the inner bus stuff. Um, because you, again, it's all about staying in that lane, but people can mm. get me on Twitter and they can feel free to DM me. Um, if they want to, I'll, sh-
0: I'll share your, your social media links in the episode notes for anybody who's looking for that. Um, back would be T Sports Saturday morning Savage early kickoff women's football. How have you been finding it? Have you? Has it been nice to go back to that less cause you must take on other people's problems at times as well. So if you're an empathetic person then you're gonna carry that about
1: I know. I think part of your job though is to make sure that you look after yourself. So self care mm. is a massive um is a massive um massively important thing to be able to practise and that you have to practice. So that's why I think that, you know, meditation for me going out walks with the dog, making sure that I'm exercising, eating well, all these things are really, really important. And having just like time with your family and doing things that are really important, mm-hmm. which is not as easy just now. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm now on a Saturday, I do final score for for the BBC. So um, my BT gigs are are, are now sort of, um, are more ad hoc. So it's my, right, okay. my focus is now final score, uh, which has been, hilarious just been a wee bit different because when you're so used to doing a, a program for you know the last few years and going on to a new program on a Saturday it's almost like being in a new class at school <laughs> where you're kind of like or you're you're walking into a party where everyone kind of knows everyone and and you don't actually you know you're you're the kind of newbie and you're kind of trying to find folk to talk to or you're trying to get the lay of the land and how the program is and the style and stuff um and I've been doing more English games as well again so doing like last weekend I was at Middlesbrough Bournemouth weekend before that I was at Ross County but I was at Sunderland the week before that I'm at Sunderland this weekend so Mm -hmm. it's just again uh trying to yeah trying to be a wee bit more sort of spending that time to sort of go into this new phase and being a wee bit more sort of um I don't know getting to grips with things that are a wee bit a wee bit different but it's nice Mm -hmm. to be back it's so nice to be back at football ground again honestly I can't tell you how good that feels
0: Thanks for rubbing that one in. I can't <laughs> no, even remember. <laughs> on next I might try and get a job as a steward or something. See if I can get myself back in. Um moving forward then. I mean, are you quite happy doing that? Have you any aspirations? I'm sure you have plenty of aspirations, but is there anything in the, the near future that you'd like to be moving on to?
1: So I'm starting so each uh, each season. Um, There's a season of this programme called Sunday Mornings with Connie McLaughlin. My season two is back uh, as of the 1st of October. I think it's the 1st of October. It's a Sunday, maybe the 1st or the 2nd. Um, And that is a programme that's more based around um, looking at cultural things through the sort of lens of spirituality, which is Mm. bloody brilliant. I love doing that programme. It's so Mm -hmm. much fun. So it looks at sort of... um, Different stories, different people's sort of um inspirational stories, books, um but more through a lens of, a lens of spirituality and religion, which is honestly I love it. Interesting. It's, have you so... read
0: have you read Angels in My Hair by Lorna Byrne? Yes. I liked it. I liked your story that you told about um when your mum gave you a book and you kind of dismissed it and you went to see the psychic in LA.
1: Oh Gabrielle Bernstein. It was, yeah. That I've was not read it um what was that? What was her? What was that one again? She's got loads Spirit of, Junkie. Spirit Junkie. Uh huh. Spirit Junkie. That was so funny. So basically, my mum had handed me this book. It must have been God about what, 13, 14 years ago. And she's mm-hmm. like, Oh, i got this book for you. And I read the first page of the first chapter and I was just like, Oh, this is a lot of rubbish. And then uh, she, like, Yeah, I went to see this psychic and she's like, you really remind me of this girl I can't explain it to you that she's like you know who I mean like that she's like the the like self-help guru woman I was like no I've no idea she's like Gabrielle Bernstein go and google her go and google her stuff and I was like okay, okay. so downloaded the audiobook and honestly pff, remember kicking about Chicago walking down sort of um main streets and just kicking about my earphones and thinking like oh my god I was having all these aha moments because this mm-hmm. girl really kind of spoke to me Um, her stuff's really good, but...
0: What's the basic premise of that book?
1: So her life was that she was a publicist, really, really sort of like the it girl in New York, Mm -hmm. and she developed a cocaine and alcohol addiction, and it got really, really bad, whereby she was going to lose her business and all her friends and everything else. And when she was high, she kept on telling people that she was going to be like a motivational speaker because she knew there was something greater, but she didn't know what this calling was. And and she said that when she was lying one night... um, she was out of face and I've always spoke to her saying if you stop this I'll show you a life that that you could never have imagined and she got clean and she ended up basically like writing and doing meditation and it completely changed her life and she became this really sort of um, uh, inspirational speaker and has all these different courses and everything about her journey to sobriety and her journey through this connection with she calls it her ing and it's our inner guidance so people might call it your intuition mm-hmm. your gods people might call it your you know your higher self or whatever it is that you you want to call it or the, the, the sort of the, the name that you give it it's something that um we all she says have access to and it's something that I totally believe as well because it's something that's a really big part of my life as well and is, is trying to connect to that sort of Inner wisdom within you to know the right way forward, because mm. I think a lot of the times you can either say it's like, you know, your your conscience or your your inner guide or whatever it's like. You always know the answer. It's just sometimes yeah. the answer that you might come up with isn't always the easiest answer. It yeah, I difficult.
0: think so. I think so as well. I think depending on where you are, sort of vibrationally and kind of how you are, for want of a better term, so it's a bit wonky, but how you are vibing, it's um, your intuition can serve up different things, and while it might not always be pleasurable. It's usually the right route that you need to take.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I'm looking really interesting. I'm going to listen to that show. So it's back. Did you, you see the first of October?
1: So yeah, the first of October. If that is indeed a Sunday, if it's the second of October, it's the first Sunday in October. Basically. Yeah, we won't
0: shoot you for getting it wrong. I know.
1: So, but so yeah, no, that's that's so much fun, and I'd love to, um, you know, do more of that. I I love doing the radio stuff. I did, I did mm-hmm. my first. Uh, Five live uh, program a couple of weeks ago that was hilarious. Good Do fun. Do you find
0: it like more fluid, less restrictive than because TV is very much here's the amount of time you've got, here's what you need to say.
1: No, but then you've got that in radio as well,
0: so mm, you're ve- yes, you're, you're
1: you're you're always being timed because your producer's telling you how long you've got in a specific segment. But it does mm-hmm. feel freer because um, it feels a wee bit more intimate, I think. It's like yeah. that feeling of being in the studio and you're you're speaking to someone, and it's it's a very it's a very intimate medium. Radio, I mm-hmm. loved in telly as well, but a lot of the time I think with TV it does it, the work that I've done certainly in telly. It's like TV news or doing reports and stuff like that, or or um, when you've got it's like specific information you're giving someone um, does doesn't give you the time to express yourself a wee bit more. So yeah, definitely I, I think radio is is a good medium to to be able to show, really, I think, who you
0: are. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I suppose there is a bit more flexibility. Um, I think, is there anything you want to pick up on just before we finish up? Because I always like to sort of leave it leave it a bit open there.
1: Leave it hanging? No, I just think if people are interested in taking more control over how they feel, because mm-hmm. I think we're in a time right now where we feel a bit out of control. Yeah. And it doesn't feel so good. Um, I think if people want to, want to be in that space where they've got a wee bit more control over how they feel emotionally, um, I would always say try, at least try meditation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, again, it's not for everyone. I've got a seven-day meditation um, that I can, you can, if you, I'll send you the link and you can put it in the notes to this mm-hmm. that people can try. It's free. Um, each day it takes you through sort of a little like sort of um journey of discovering a bit more about yourself and I think the more that we can discover about what we need what we want the things that make us feel better the things that actually that that we bring value to people as well and how we can serve people better then that connects us more to to like that inner guidance or that Mm. that that sort of ing if you want to call it or that higher self which makes life a wee bit easier
0: Look, right. I'll try it then. If you send it, I'll be the first and then I'll share with everybody how I can offend it. it. And uh, if I don't win the lottery, then I'll be making a complaint.
1: (laughs) I'm not so sure that's part of the agreement as well I'd listen because I would have won the lottery several times over if that was the case. I I wouldn't be sitting here. I'd be sitting in Barbados somewhere with a mask on.
0: (laughs) No, great. Well, I'll try it well thanks very much for giving me your time I've really enjoyed it um, we've covered a lot of bases and, and I hope you listening at home or wherever you are have enjoyed it as well and you can catch us again on or soon cheers
1: Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light.
0: Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com
1: From The Big Light Studio